thing actually about our church that we can actually have this conversation at all. It really is an amazing thing. It says a lot about our church's love of the church, our church's love of Scripture, our church's love of one another, our church's humility to consider, consider things that are different than the way we've always thought, um, or at least the way we've always practiced um, our church life together. And so um, I really am proud of you and the way that you have... Um, are thinking through this and processing this. I also just want to remind us of our the big picture context that we started the year with is our church has been really for years trying to kind of find our identity post the Harvest Bible Chapel catastrophe, really. And uh, we've spend, been spending a long time on that. I've spent a lot of time on that, a lot of painful years on that. And um, so that's the big picture is who are we? What are we going to believe going, and how are we going to function going forward. And so that's big picture in the background of our church's history. The second is just our church's love. And one of the things that's sweet about love is 1 Peter 4.8 says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Right? You know, the Apostle Peter knew the threat to love that sin was. Oftentimes, there's a threat to love that's not even sin. But especially, there's a threat to our love when there's sin. But above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And I just think it's really important that we keep 1 Peter 4 8 in our mind. Um, love covers a multitude of sins. And you know what that assumes? That assumes that in a multitude of situations, there's a multitude of sin. You know? It's like, here's what I want our church to assume about pretty much everything. There's failure everywhere. Because we get really, we have a ways of getting very nitpicky about where the sin is and who did what, and they did this, and they did this, or, and we just lose sight of ourselves. It's like, the truth is, there's just failure everywhere all the time. That's how sin is. And it's just such a wonderful starting place to all entrust ourselves to the grace of God. Right? The third thing that I want to remind us in our context is the dark day in which we live. The church is in ruins. The church is just in ruins. So either... Either we unite in as many ways as we can as Christians, or we all die alone. We unite in as many ways as we can. That doesn't mean we become ecumenical. It doesn't mean we unite about everything. Right? In the Reformation, there was major division. And it was absolutely necessary. But the dark day in which we live, when the church is in ruins, either we unite in as, many, in as many ways as we can as Christians, or we all die alone. That really is, I mean, the game has been changing for the last 20 years in, at a rapid speed, and in the last 10 years at a rapid speed, and in the last five years at an even more rapid speed. And so the church is going to suffer terribly. Did you see the White House's executive order this week? You probably don't, aren't even aware of it. And you need, to, you need to know, because it's an executive order on all things gay and perverse. 
And it has implications for Jesus and his church. And it's going to get harder and harder. It's going to get harder and harder to find a faithful church committed to the doctrines of the Reformation and its practice and giving itself to pastoral care. And so I want to appeal for you on a very, very human level at a moment, and for a moment. Because I've, I've told you that truth does not operate in a vacuum. Truth always has people in mind or not in mind. And sometimes we form our truth and we think it's in a vacuum and we're not really aware of the devastation we're causing. And so I want to just um, appeal to you on a very human level for a moment. Already in most places in America, just finding faithfulness in the church of Jesus Christ is very, very difficult. So now imagine this reality. Most places, there would be nowhere to go for a paedo-baptist, meaning a person who believes in infant baptism. Most places, there would be nowhere to go for a paedo-baptist where a church that held, faithful, that held faithfully to the Reformation, doctrines, and practice. And this is actually where I believe Baptist churches, which are in the majority, and we're a Baptist church functionally, because really, I want you to understand how I use the word Baptist. I use it in two ways. One is, I use it to understand that historically, there really was Presbyterians and Baptists, and then all kinds of splintering of Baptists. Okay. But they're all Baptists in many, many ways because they are, are credo-Baptists. Um, we wouldn't think of them as Baptists, but they're Baptistic because they are historically derived from Baptists. Now, they might want to fight you on that, but there's no escaping it. <laughs> there's just historically no escaping it. So I use Baptist in that sense, um, very, very generally to cover everybody who's not a paedo-Baptist. <laughs> okay. Um, and then I use it in another sense sometimes as a characterization of things that typically characterize Baptists. And we all have our characterizations, right? And so there are certain ways that characterize Baptists, just like there are certain things that characterize uh, Pado-Baptists and Presbyterians, for instance. In every stage and station of all of our lives, there are certain things that characterize them. For good and ill. Okay, so... Um, this is where I believe, because of the difficulty of finding a faithful church today, this is actually where I believe Baptist churches can extend an olive branch to Pado baptists who are trying to find a faithful church. And um, Baptist churches, and the reason I say that is because Baptist churches are in the majority by far, by far, various, of various stripes and colors, but they're in the majority by far. And so I think they can extend an olive branch of patience, of charity, and love to our sisters and to our brothers who differ on baptism. And can actually do hard work. This is very, very hard work. To do very, very hard work um, of working through very difficult issues on baptism and find ways to walk together forward. And the way I would say it is to heal long-held schisms between Christian brothers and sisters, just agreeing on so much and yet disagreeing on the timing and mode of baptism. 
And um, I was, this is, this is where it gets, it's very human. Because if you think for a second, imagine the scenario where, imagine the situation where there's a town, there's, there's, there's one Baptist church, that's, or there's maybe some Baptist churches that are faithful, or there's one Baptist church that's faithful, and there's no Pado Baptist church that's faithful. So what is a Pado Baptist supposed to do who lives in that town or that city? They have two options. Well, they have three options, but, I mean, for crying out loud, how oppressive do we have to get? You know, one option is to just completely move, you know, cities and uproot their life. That's one. Um, it's just so oppressive, I almost don't even want to ask us to even consider it. The second option would be to live within that Baptist church, and usually the way it works is just to live within that Baptist church and its particular framework, which oppresses them because they can't actually live according to the freedom of their conscience. So they're, they're oppressed. They can't actually live by Scripture. Okay. Um, the uh, other option is... Um, they try to figure out how to live according to the freedom of their conscience, but there's nowhere for them to go. And so they're, in some sense, informally excommunicated from the church in that town. So you have a Christian brother, so you have one of God's beloved saints, a precious saint to him who is informally excommunicated from the church or just has to live oppressed. They hold a credible, historical, orthodox position on baptism. But they have no real home in the church. They have to be oppressed because they can't live according to their conscience. They can't ever really lead in the church because they don't agree with the church on baptism. And I just think we have to wrestle with the fact as Baptists that we have informally and will increasingly do so. Sometimes we've done it formally. We've said they're not Christians because of their position on baptism. And Presbyterians have done that to Baptists too. These go both ways. But we're a Baptist church in essence, and so I'm dealing with us, right? And so we have to deal with what we have to deal with to consider this. I'm not talking to a group of Presbyterians, right? or pedo-baptists. And what's amazing to me is I was actually on a phone call yesterday morning about this very issue in real time actually happening out of nowhere. And the timing of it is just remarkable to me. It's not like I get a phone call like that every week, but very real, a whole family displaced, and I won't get into it right now, but displaced and having nowhere to go where they can live in the freedom of their conscience. And you say, well, they could go to the, you know, the church that does infant baptism and is horrible on homosexuality. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would not recommend that. Because that church is actually headed towards, a depart, is heading towards the departure from orthodoxy. However, right, they are on baptism in their mind, okay? And so this is really ground-level people stuff. It's love of God and love of God's saints stuff. It actually can informally excommunicate Christians 
from Christ's church functionally. So, so either, and so you have to think about it. We either oppress an orthodox, biblical, credible position in Scripture, historically, on the timing and mode of baptism, or we informally excommunicate it, or we find some kind of way forward where everybody gives a little bit and we all live in peace together, in patience and charity, recognizing that somebody's wrong. Now, what some of you will think is that, um, what some of you will think is that infant baptism just isn't a credible orthodox position. But I would just ask you, by what authority do you make that decision? By what authority do you excommunicate, literally, excommunicate? If it's not an orthodox position, then it's not Christian. And by what authority do you make that judgment? Do you have the authority to decide that yourself? Do you think the priesthood of believers goes that far? It does not. It does not. There's no way for it to go that far. All that is is using the priesthood of believers for you to be an authority uh, unto yourself to decide what is Christian and what is not Christian on every point, including this one. By what authority do you decide it? Because by deciding it, if you decide that, you reject hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of church history affirming the credibility of the biblical position as Christian. Do you have the authority to stand against the whole church? You should be telling yourself, no, I do not. Do you have the authority to excommunicate the Westminster Assembly and the Westminster Divines who were ten times the giants of the faith or a hundred times the giants of the faith that anybody here is and that pretty much any leader in America is? Do you have the authority within yourself to excommunicate them? By what authority do you decide that this is not a credible orthodox position when the history of the church has witnessed to it being a legitimate position that can be considered Christian. So be careful about being arrogant and being an authority unto yourself. Especially when the witness of the church is against you down through the ages. Now, to be fair, this would be exactly the same in the opposite direction for someone practicing believer's baptism in places where there were no faithful Baptist churches. It doesn't just go one way. The informal excommunication or oppression goes both ways. Maybe to a lesser extent because a a paedo-baptist church will still perform believer's baptism, and you would still be able to do that as your children age and are converted. But 
most, most of those churches will still not allow you to function in the fullness of service in the kingdom of God and in their church because if you don't agree with paedo-baptism. And so the, the oppression can go both ways, and both can be alienated, but we're Baptists, and we are the majority in America, and the oppression is less, is in a lesser way, in the other direction. So, but I do criticize us and our Baptist tendencies because it's worth criticizing. None of us are past it, and we are a Baptist church and need to humble ourselves and get the log out of our eye, especially on the point of baptism, so that we can actually see with humility and charity and even consider preferring one another as more important than ourselves. So, one point now that I want to be crystal clear again on. We are not leading our church down a road to change our position on baptism. That's not what this is about at all. We're not asking anyone here to change their position on baptism. And I'll say more about that in a minute. Actually, if everybody started changing their position on baptism, I would be very unhappy with you. Is that okay for a a father of the church to say? I would be very unhappy with that. Do I want to make it more okay than it is now for someone to change their position on baptism as they wrestle these things through? Yes. Yes. Why? Because what we're asking the church to consider and to do is to love in patience and charity our pedo baptist brethren within our local congregation. We're not asking anyone to change their position. My hope would be that this whole process would actually strengthen your position for many of you. We're asking to consider giving one another freedom of conscience so that no one either has to be refused their conscience and their biblical convictions and their understanding of Scripture, nor to be informally excommunicated from the Church of Bloomington. That's what we're doing. Now, why do Pado-Baptists baptize their children? Well, Psalm, Psalm, I'll, I'll cover many things here, but Psalm 103 is important because the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. And so... Um, they baptize their children to dem- the, for the parents to demonstrate their faith that their children are gods and that they are children of the covenant community from right children's to children's children. They are believing the covenant promises that they are gods in covenant, that they are children of the covenant community. They are members of the visible church. They are marked out. I know you'll have a hard time with this language but they are marked out to be Jesus' disciples. And the way you hear that is you think immediately that's sacramentalism, but it's not sacramentalism because what Christian parent doesn't raise their kids, doesn't disciple their children? Right. 
from infancy. Baptizing their children because they're not free to choose their own gods. They are bound by the covenant of their parents. The waters have marked them as belonging in the covenant of the one true God to whom they must submit. Yet they are not members of the invisible church until conversion. They are not members of the fullness of the heavenly citizenry until conversion. So baptism still symbolizes death and resurrection, the washing of regeneration, the remission of sins, salvation through the waters of judgment, just as it does with believer's baptism. They would even argue that believer's baptism is the fullest symbol of these truths and that infant baptism is not the fullest symbol of these truths. Ultimately, the efficacy of baptism is applied at conversion, though conversion comes after baptism in their case. Now, just to be as clear as possible as I can be, no good paedo-baptist believes that their infant is saved by baptism. That's That's not Reformation theology. That's not Protestant. Remember, Pado and Credo both hold Scripture in high esteem, Both hold that baptism is a command of our Lord and that it has the same essential meaning. Both hold that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and both have hope in the promises of God for their children. Promise meaning not 100% guarantee, but generally God is pleased to work by His covenant through households and families and children and children's children. It doesn't have to be true in every exception for us to have hope in God's promises. Okay. Now, so, what does believing the promise to our children mean for every Christian parent? It means praying and hope. It means discipleship training with teaching and discipline. It means parenting them as godly examples who have faith. That's what believing God's promise for your children looks like. Okay? And so most of us should go, oh yeah, that's what we do, right? It's not, it's, not, it's not like a big foreign concept to us. We all function like this, even though we don't understand that we actually have a lot of biblical backing to function like this, to give us more hope to function like this. Now here's an argument for pedo-baptism, and, and, and trust me, I, I'm barely scratching the surface. Just barely scratching the surface. But please hear this. If you're a Baptist, I'm happy for you to stay a Baptist. I'm not trying to change your position on baptism. I have two goals right now in giving you an argument on pedo-baptism. The first is to give you enough of an argument to understand that Reformed pedo-baptism is a credible Orthodox position and we should grant the um, charity and kindness, and assurance that this is Christian and you are Christians. You are brothers and sisters in the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. So to not just excommunicate your brothers and sisters knowingly or unknowingly in how you think about this. The second reason is to provoke your heart to patience and charity and love across baptism lines and even within our own local congregation. 
to provoke your heart to patience and charity and love across baptism lines within our local congregation. Okay, so there's a lot here, but here's an argument for baptism. Pado-Baptists affirm a unity of the covenant of grace throughout Scripture that's not merely just broken from the old covenant to the new, a unity of the covenant of grace throughout Scripture and that this has always included infants. So in the old covenant, it was circumcision, and in the new covenant, it is baptism. Now, when you hear the covenant of grace, just think, these are the words to describe. God is making people for himself from the beginning. And he made promises and is keeping promises to that end. Now, when you think about infant baptism, the way to understand it is to understand circumcision. If you understand circumcision, then you understand infant baptism. Okay? It really is, that is the nature of how Pado Baptist thinks about infant baptism. That is the new covenant, sign and seal for infants is baptism just as it was circumcision in the Old Covenant. Now, I want to just read this to you again, but in Genesis chapter 17. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout, your genera- throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. You have to hear the love of God in wanting to actually keep his covenant with generations of people. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. And so circumcision marked infant males and as members of the covenant and those males who are among the household. Now, Pado-Baptists argue that God did then and, um, and does now include infants in the covenant. And that circumcision then and now, baptism, and that circumcision then and now baptism is the sign and seal of the covenant which includes children. Okay? Now, secondly, this. Pado-Baptists affirm that God's church of old and now has always included infants as members. Now, this kind of necessarily follows. Um, You would describe the church based on the nature of the covenant. So if they believe that infants are members of the covenant, then they would be members of the church also. The argument is that it has always been this way and continues to be this way. Now, I think one of the strongest arguments for the paedo-baptism position is, um, is this point, okay? That generation after generation, you had circumcision, the nature of the covenant included infants in the Old, old Covenant, and it's undeniable. Okay? And, um, and so the, for several thousand years, we have Abraham and all the generations after him circumcised, and the infants were included in the covenant and marked by circumcision. Now, if 
at the turn of the new covenant, if there are no longer, if infants are no longer members of the covenant and needing the sign of the covenant, in this case, it would be baptism now. If they no longer need the sign of the covenant because they are not members of the covenant, you understand what I When I say members of the covenant, I don't mean they're saved. You have to keep that in your mind. Or you will not understand the position, and this is where you'll charge it with not orthodox and not Christian. You cannot do that. You have to think more carefully, okay? But if infants are no longer members of the covenant in the same sense, there should be some explanation somewhere in the New Testament that explains why there's such a massive change. Okay. Why is there not an explanation somewhere of such a massive change of the way God has worked from the Old Covenant to the New? But there is no explanation of this change in the New Testament. And so uh, they maintain the need for continuity rather than a discontinuity between the two. There is no explicit mention of infant baptism in the New Testament. But there is no explicit denial of infant baptism in the New Testament. And so Baptists argue that there should be a mention of it in the Scriptures to hold the infant baptism position. That's what a credo-baptist would argue. There should be some mention of it in the Scriptures to hold the infant baptism position. But a paedo-baptist will say, actually... They'll argue the burden of proof is on the credo-baptists to say, why does Scripture not tell us that no longer are infants included in the covenant when for thousands of years they were? And I'll just tell you, I think that's a strong argument. Now all of you are going there, well, can I agree with that? That's not the point. Stop. Remember the point. Now think about it and decide for yourself if that's right. But that's, the point isn't, to go, isn't just to go, well, is that right? The point is just to understand that it's a credible position and it's a reasonable argument so that you can extend patience and grace across baptism lines and charity and love, okay? It's not just to go, well, that's wrong. And it's also, I also don't want you to easily go, well, that's right. You know, like you shouldn't hear this much theology and then change your baptism position. (laughs) But, this is a strong argument. When they argue that the burden of proof is on those who are arguing that infants are no longer in the covenant and to be marked as covenant members. Because it is a massive change. And it's important that you know this isn't easily answerable by a credo-baptist. There's not a neat, easy way to just solve that problem. There are ways that they do it, always, right? There are ways that they do it. But it's not just, it's, what I'm trying to get you to see, it's, it's not all easy, oh, here's the simple answer to that problem, and move on. It's, it's just all simple and easy. It's not like that. And I'm kind of trying to get us to move away from thinking that complex theological issues that have really been a wrestling in the church for hundreds of years, they're never like that. It's not that there aren't arguments to answer it. 
It's just that it's not a simple answer, case closed, no problems or questions left, whatever, you know, whatsoever. Now, I want to then say this. Pedo-Baptists affirm that the primary way baptism has been done for the vast majority of church history has been pedo-baptism. So a humble credo-baptist has to admit that this is true. Credo-baptists do not have the majority of history on their side in an argument on baptism. Now, history has to have its place, but they don't have the, the fullness of history on their side. Pedo-Baptists have the greatest amount of church history on their side, especially pre-Reformation, back to the end of the first and second, uh, well, the second century, heading into the third century, which is still pre-Roman Catholic state church. So here's a disclaimer now. Every, everybody in Christendom wants to claim that from the time of Jesus to the beginning of where we see writings about any particular position, in that time frame where we don't have very much writing about a lot of things and records of a lot of things and positions about a lot of things, everybody wants to claim that their position was what was functioned from the moment Jesus died on the cross until the moment where we have writing on it. And so what I think is an important way for you to think is to be skeptical of anybody who strongly appeals to that time where we don't actually have that many resources available to consider the issue and to claim that therefore they're the modern, they're on the right side of history and modernity because they were on the right side in the time where no one really knows for sure. But they will talk, everyone will talk, like that's the time that they, (laughs) that everybody did what they said. (laughs) And we just don't have that much on it. And that's why I say a humble credo-baptist needs to actually um, admit that this reality is true because then, around the end of the second century, which is the first time that we actually see infant baptism written down somewhere, and then we start to see it in the beginning of the third century with uh, Hippolytus and Tertullian both mentioning um, infant baptism in church services. Tertullian uh, actually criticizes that people are doing it without the weight that it deserves, which tells you something about the commonality of the practice at the time. Um, But have a little skepticism about everybody who has an argument before that and what happened. Augustine was not baptized as an infant, um, but eventually argued strongly for the position And really, from that point forward, infant baptism was what the church did. Just what the church did. um, All the way up until the point of the Reformation. But it also got weird. Because uh, a massive amount of that time, it wasn't like they practiced infant baptism the way we're talking about it today the whole time. What What oftentimes we fail to realize is that the church is actually growing up in maturity. That's something that we don't think about. I mean, the church through history is actually growing up in its understanding and maturity. If you need Bible on that, go to Ephesians chapter 4 and read it, not, not as if it's local church, but if it's, as it's the cosmic church. And you will understand exactly what I'm saying. These things are reasoned out through time. The church matures through time. That's why we don't look, can't just look back and judge the failures of saints in the past all the time. We just think, well, they had a Bible, we had a Bible, why don't they know what we know? 
and we're arrogant. We're so arrogant. Like, the reason that we know what we know is because of a lot of the work that happened for 2,000 years. Okay, so, let me get back on my point. Augustine was not baptized, but did argue it strongly. But you come to um, a pretty large swath of about 1,000 years in there where um, infant baptism didn't happen in the church. It happened in private ceremonies. There was full of superstition. And it was, um, uh, became sacramentalist. In other words, they were baptizing, doing infant baptism, in large part, in a sacramental way. This is what saves you. Okay? And that's a large part of history. And so, even though they have the weight of history on their side, there's still questions. Still questions. Now, it's also important that you understand that the Reformers, when they came along... They didn't just go, infant baptism doesn't save you, and that was the only change they made about infant baptism. They completely reformed the understanding of infant baptism. Actually, the way I'm arguing about the argument for infant baptism right now is from the work of the Reformers. And it was, it was a growth out of serious study of Scripture but opposed completely to what had become Rome's practice now for a long time. And so it became a part of the church. It became about recognizing children as members of the covenant. And it became, um, uh, they got rid of the private ceremonies and the superstition and all of these kinds of things. And so the way that we know it today stems from their work of reforming it completely. They emphasize the importance, this is really important, they emphasize the importance of the faith of the parents to believe God's promise to their children, and they carried great weight and put great weight on it. So then post-Reformation, as this gets worked out, you have the Westminster Confession, which is, uh, I'm not aware of a confession of faith in history that rivals the Westminster Confession of Faith. You know, the London Baptist Confession is close, but it's also uh, different for various reasons. Different on baptism, of course. But then comes the Westminster Confession, penned in 1648. All of us owe a tremendous amount of debt, regardless of whether we agree with the Westminster Confession on baptism or not. We all owe a tremendous amount of debt to the Westminster Assembly and the work of uh, Reformed doctrine and Protestant doctrine coming out of the Reformation, rescuing us from Rome a tremendous amount of debt, a debt that we don't understand how much we owe. And that confession really is the groundwork that established the Reformation doctrine as um, Christian doctrine for hundreds of years now. The Westminster Confession is paedobaptistic. And it's been accepted by the church as a faithful system of doctrine for 400 years, thus establishing that paedobaptism is a credible, biblical, and orthodox way of thinking about baptism. For clarity, again, nothing I've said, and for any faithful paedobaptist, means that infant baptism saves, or it even guarantees 100% future salvation at some point. No one believes that who has faith. No one. 
The reformers didn't believe that, and those today don't believe that. Some children apostatize and must be disciplined or excommunicated from the church family or the covenant community. So, the conclusion here is that credo-baptists must agree that it is an orthodox Christian position, even if they disagree with infant baptism, as laid down in the Westminster Confession of Faith. A credo-baptist and reformed baptist can hold the Westminster Confession as their personal confession of what Scripture teaches and have an exception on baptism. That's perfectly acceptable. But so thus, patience and charity is needed. Now, I want to be clear about a couple of things because there are many issues that arise from a paedo-baptist argument. First of all, inconsistencies. Now, we just read in Genesis chapter 17 that males were circumcised. And so, if there was a perfect continuity between circumcision and infant baptism, this is a question that comes up. Well, we don't only do infant baptism with males. So why? Why... Do we now? Why is the sign now marked by both little baby boys and baby girls? These are in, there's some inconsistencies, you know? We don't baptize unbelieving spouses and bring them into the covenant community. There's an inconsistency, a discontinuity there. Well, why? No. Um, things that were different. There's certain questions that arise even about church history. Infant baptism has been normal in the church for most of church history, but there was a long period where it was also full of corruption and need of reform, and it was also ran by a state church, so it just raises questions. And they're not all easily answerable. So just like um, on the side of the coin where credo-baptists would want to just kind of button everything up, make it real neat and nice and tidy so that there's no questions, deal is sealed, no questions remain. Credo-Baptists are very good at this. (laughs) Just neat and tidy. How could anybody ever question anything? (laughs) And I just think, oh, for crying out loud, can we just stop thinking so highly of ourselves? It's not pride. It's biblical. I think, well, good. Hold your position. Try to find a way to do do it more humbly, though. So... But with history, there's also some issues in history with it. And so it's not like you can just make a pure argument from history without any questions on the Pado-Baptist side. And for the Credo-Baptists, the type and shadow of the ceremonial law, and they would argue including circumcision, is fulfilled in Christ. So there's no need to mark infants in the New Covenant because it's fulfilled in Christ. So, now, right? So there's, there's questions. And they're not all easily answerable. But there's questions on the believer's baptism and credo-baptist side too that are not all easily answerable. And so, of course, I'm not saying that there aren't ways that paedo-baptists can respond to these questions. Just as in the other direction. What I'm saying is that both sides have questions that are difficult to answer. And if we're humble as we look at Scripture, then we're okay saying that. We're okay with that. We have our position, but some of this is more complex than we would like to think. And it's, it's not easy. 
And so we should be skeptical of anyone who makes all the answers just seem easy and obvious all the time. So where is the person who can just be honest about the difficulties on both sides? I mean, really. Right? No one ever taught you baptism and said there were questions, did they? Now, they taught you baptism as if no one could question a thing. As if there wasn't anything difficult about it at all. It's the most obvious thing in Scripture. Like, the church has been fighting about this for 400 years. But, we now see how easy it is, and they're all idiots. So, shame on us. Now, would you please pray for your pastors and elders? This is very, very difficult work. And we're meeting this week, and our main agenda item is plotting the way forward for our church on this point. What can we do to bring healing across lines of schism? And how can we live together in love on something like baptism? And I'll just be honest and say, baptism is more difficult than anything else Any other issue, you know, you think about the issues where churches have to decide whether they're going to divide over spiritual gifts or, you know, eschatology or something like that. Baptism is by far much harder to figure out how to um, walk together in ways and practically work it out so that everyone could live by the freedom of their conscience and maintain peace in the church. It's more difficult than anything else. So please pray for us. By that, I don't mean to say that you can't, we can't do it. If I didn't think we could do it, I wouldn't be sitting here for the last four weeks having you consider such things. Then I would say, pray for yourself. Pray for yourself. We need to be strongly convinced of our biblical positions. But pray that you would be willing to consider something that will push your patience and charity and love and tenderness towards your brethren in Christ across baptism lines. And I want to say again, I will not be happy if all of you become, if we become a Pado baptist church. I will not be happy about that. So, I'm glad for you to consider and wrestle these things, but you may not change your position until um, you do what I tell you to do. Because there's a lot of ways that you will actually change your doctrine and you will do it in the you will you will do it actually wrongly. There's all kinds of ways to change your doctrine and do it wrong. And so I'm not going to make it just perfectly easy on everybody to jump ship for a new idea and a new movement and a new fangled whatever. You know, I was uh, sitting in my driveway um, the other day, and uh, on, our, on the back of our workshop, we have a workshop off the back of our garage, and on one end it's got these small barn doors, and they open in the center, you know. And, um, and I was sitting in the driveway, and the wind was blowing, and they were open. They were just like banging and squeaking and clanging 
and just making a whole racket. And you know what thought, the first thought that came to my mind was? This is what young men are like. They're just banging and clanging and squeaking and noisy when they're trying to uh, deal with doctrinal issues. And what I mean by that is you watch a YouTube video and all of a sudden you change your position on baptism. What I mean by that is you don't give consideration to the fact that your pastor, you realize I'm God's gift to you and his providence to be your pastor? You realize that. Just like your father was your father in God's providence, I am uh, your primary father in the faith in this church by God's providence. What a gift to you, huh? Don't you wish you had an angel? A lot of days I wish you did too, trust me. And I've been thinking about this since probably 2007. So for 15 years. Young men are like all the noise and everything shifting and changing and blowing around and banging. And it's like, and, and it's just, mature men don't do that. Mature men arrive at their conclusions and their convictions slowly. And they also don't do it They don't do it in rejection of their pastor's authority quickly, right? And so, and and they don't just jump on new ideas. You should move slowly and carefully, not just jump on bandwagons, and not because you have an allegiance to some celebrity leader somewhere. Trust me, if you had to deal with that celebrity leader up close and personal, you wouldn't be able to stomach it. Trust me. Just trust me. You just get to deal with me up close and personal. I have a lot more to say practically about this. Um, I want you to hear this. Some of you will be tempted to think that I'm just uh, a loose cannon throwing out ideas that have no historical basis either on the point of unity across baptism lines. Because our default way of thinking is, well, most churches haven't done this. There's a reason why they haven't done this. Therefore, but, but what you don't know is how many men down through church history have actually fought for this. They just haven't won. They just haven't won for a lot of reasons, and I'll I'll hopefully get into that next week. Ian Murray wrote the great biography on Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's two huge volumes. Ian Murray, in his early, especially early biographical work, was second to none on um, men of church history and women of church history. Here's what I want you to hear him saying about Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I would commend Martin Lloyd-Jones to you. His position was also original on the subject of the administration of baptism. Though serving all his ministry in churches belonging to denominations of paedo-baptist belief, 
he early abandoned the practice of infant baptism. So he was not a he did not believe infant baptism, but he was pastoring within churches that did. So Martin Lloyd Jones did this. This has existed before. All right, now listen. Two authors in particular swayed his judgment. Now it's going to get interesting for you. Um, yet he did not become a Baptist because he did not believe in immersion. Two authors in particular swayed his judgment against immersion. One was Charles Hodge and the other B.P. Warfield in his article, The Archaeology of the Mode of Baptism. As a result, he was to say, I was quite convinced that the case for infant baptism could not be proved, but I was equally convinced that the case for immersion could not be proved. In practice then, uh, Ian Murray says, in practice then, he dedicated the children of believers baptized others by sprinkling upon their profession of faith. The questions which he put publicly to those he baptized were usually taken from the Heidelberg Catechism. His views on baptism almost never appeared in his public ministry, partly, I suppose, because opposition to infant baptism would have been uh, contrary to the trustees of the churches he served, but certainly because of his burden. Here's the key. But certainly because of his burden... In other words, Martin Lloyd-Jones carried a burden being the pastor in those churches. Because of his burden to emphasize the things which all evangelicals hold in common. He especially regretted that baptism had ever been made a point of denominational identity and was critical of baptism in that regard. Martin Lloyd-Jones, known for his commitment to the truth. Loved for his commitment to the Scriptures. One of the best Bible teachers in the last hundred years by far, if not the best. He especially regretted that baptism had ever been made a point of denominational identity and was critical of baptism in that regard. There are ways forward. There are ways forward. There are practical questions. There are real, lots and lots and lots of practical questions to work out. But there are ways forward. There are other churches that find ways forward on this. My biggest concern is that we don't form our Uh, doctrinal convictions in a vacuum. We recognize that they affect real people. And I just think if we don't find a way forward, then those who are persuaded otherwise on baptism among us, the only option is for us to oppress them or to informally excommunicate them. That's our option. You say, well, that's what a church committed to the truth would do. And I say, no, no, I don't think so. I think a church can be just as committed to the truth, but a church that actually loves can find a way forward. So patience, charity, even forbearance. Even forbearance. I'm comfortable with that word with one another who disagree on baptism. Even forbearance within the same congregation. 
Not that it necessarily has to be easy for everyone to do this. Forbearance is a good word. Doesn't mean we break, but we forbear in unity. We forbear in unity. So pray for us and pray for yourself. And um, I have a message next week to try to pull this all together and actually deal with some questions that I know still remain, especially about history, practical questions, and what this can look like and what a way forward is. And, um, and I would love to hear what your questions are. I would love to hear what your questions are. Because that will help us to help uh, in the edification of the congregation. Stand with me for prayer, would you? Father, thank you. Thank you for our dear brethren who are persuaded of paedo-baptism and our dear brethren who are persuaded of credo-baptism. Thank you that we're all yours. Thank you that you walk with all of us and thank you that you're forbearing with all of us. Father, forgive us. We have sinned against one another. We have exaggerated each other's position. We have slandered it. We have mocked each other. We have tons of mischaracterization. We have, we have a ton of sin against each other. <clears throat> and I pray that our church would take seriously these considerations and, and that we would repent and walk humbly. That we would prefer our brothers and sisters across baptism lines as more important than ourselves. We do pray that there would be a healing across this schism over the next hundred years in your church. We pray that you would help us to endure the coming suffering together. We need each other, Father. We do pray that you would help us to unite together as the game has changed in the last years in our land in every way that we can. And for our church, we pray that you really would make us Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name.